Thank you so much for joining us today. For those of you who are watching online, thank you. For those of you who are outside, thank you for being here. For all of you who are here this morning, uh, we're really excited. Today we're, we're going to begin a brand new series. And it's not the series that we had planned to, uh, to do uh, three weeks ago uh, when God kind of redirected us, the Holy Spirit redirected us. But it's a different series. Um, now that COVID seems to be winding down, at least here in our country, for which we're very thankful, we wanted to take the next month or so to speak to you about what the pandemic has revealed to us, because it has revealed quite a bit to us. And so we're calling this series The Great Revealer, The Great Revealer. And during, um, early on during the lockdown, uh, a leadership um, guru, if you want to call him that, John Maxwell, hosted a virtual conference in which he said that crisis is the great revealer. And it reveals three things. It reveals who we are, it reveals what we value, and it reveals what we believe. Just as, for example, it reveals reveals who we are. Just as lemon juice um, comes out of a lemon when you squeeze it. What comes out of you when you are squeezed in a crisis reveals what's inside of you. So, a crisis reveals who you are. Second, reveals what you value. Um, if I had access to your smartphones, and if I could uh, access all of your text messages, look at all your text messages, and look at all your emails, and if I could look at everything that you comment on and post on, on Twitter, on your social media feed, Facebook, Instagram, the whole lot, right? If I could take a look at your online calendar, and if I could look at what you do every single day from the time you get up and time to the time you go to sleep and all the people you meet with and all things you do during the day. If I could access your online bank statement and take a look at everything that you use your debit card for, your credit card for, what you spend your money on, I can determine with a fairly high de- degree of accuracy what it is you value. In the same way, I can determine what you value by the way you react to a crisis. Right? That's the idea. We... We, uh, crisis reveals what we value. I'll never forget my visceral reaction when terrorists slammed their planes in the World Trade Center on 9-11 many years ago. We face a national crisis. And all I wanted, went, right after that happened, the moment we got news of that, and we turned on the television sets to watch what was going on, the only thing I wanted to do was gather my family. I just wanted to be with my family. I didn't want them. At, I didn't want the girls at school. I wanted them here with me. I just wanted to be with them because they're the ones I value most on this earth, right? And so, crisis reveals what we value. Third, crisis reveals what we believe. Author John Gordon said that you may think you believe something, but it isn't until you face a crisis that you will discover if you truly believe that or not. Early on. In my Christian faith, I was, confronted, I was confronted with a question of whether or not I would continue to believe in God and be a Christian if something bad happened to me, if something, something tragic happened to my family. It was the same issue that Job was confronted with in the book of Job. Remember what Satan said to God about Job. Remember that? Take a look at it. I'll just put it up here for you. Okay, Job 1.11. Satan said to God, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. See, the devil knew that crisis would reveal what Job really believed, and he was counting on Job to turn away from God if God allowed him to suffer. But, of course, he didn't. 
See, crisis reveals what we believe. And that's, a, that's exactly what the pandemic has done. It has revealed who we are, it has revealed what we value, and it has revealed what we believe. And those are the things we're going to talk about here in the coming weeks. And on this front, on this front of re, uh, crisis revealing uh, who we are, what we believe, and what we value, there is good news and there is bad news. There's good news and there's bad news. It's like the, ca- the campaign aide who walked into Russian President Vladimir Putin's office in the Kremlin. And he, said that he, and he went there to give him the results of the, the recent presidential election. And he says, Mr. President, I have some good news for you and I have some bad news for you. What would you like to hear first? And he said, well, give me the good news first. He said, okay, the good news is you have been reelected president for another term, so congratulations. And he says, okay, great. What's the bad news, comrade? He said, the bad news is nobody voted for you. See, when it comes, when it comes to the pandemic, it has revealed some good news, but it, all, it has also revealed some bad news. And as I said, we're going to cover both in the coming weeks. Before I begin, I want to invite all of you, no matter where you're at, whether you're watching online, whether you're outside, whether you're here, whether you're watching this even a week or two um, after the service has taken place, I want to ask you all to join me in prayer. And I want you to pray this very simple prayer, all right? And the prayer is this, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. All right, will you all bow your heads and pray with me? Father, please speak to us. We don't want to hear from a man today. We want to hear from you today. So remove all the distractions. And for the next 35 minutes or so, speak to us. Stir in us. Convict us. Have your way with us. Say to us whatever it is that you want to say to us through your word. And I ask, I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, I have a confession to make. Okay, I have a confession to make. When we had to shut our church down in March of last year, I was devastated. In fact, I can speak for all of our pastors and tell you that we were all crushed. In fact, all of our volunteers... Probably all of you were crushed. I wasn't the only one, right? We were all devastated. And when we logged on in March, we really believed, we sincerely believed that the lockdown would last for only about a month and we would be back in April for Easter. We believed that we would be back here for Easter, but then Easter came and it went and we were still locked down. And then the summer came and went and we were still locked down. And then fall came. And there was no harvest fest, and we were still locked down. And Christmas came, and we were still locked down. And I think that I can uh, honestly say that as the months went on, we began to find our groove. We found our groove. I got into the rhythm. I got into the rhythm. I got got my message done by Friday. Usually I don't finish it until Saturday right before the service. I got it done by Friday. I came in here into an empty room. And Nicole and maybe Gaston were here, and we would record the message, and then I would be done. I would be done for the entire weekend, because now it was up to them. They would make sure it would go online on Saturday and on Sunday. So Saturday came. I didn't have to go to the office. I could sleep in late. I could hang out with my family. We could do whatever we wanted to do. Of course, we couldn't do much because we were locked down. 
But Friday, Saturday nights we could go out to dinner, but we couldn't go out to dinner. But, but at least I had Saturday nights free. I've, I've never had Saturdays free. And then 5 o'clock on Saturday rolls around, and I thought, well, I'll just watch the service on Sunday. So Sunday came, and I would sleep until 5 minutes to 9. At 8.55, my phone would start to buzz, and I'd say, oh, it's got time to wake up. So I'd get up, run into the living room, turn on the television, log on to YouTube, grab a cup of Joe, and watch the 9 a.m. service in my Darth Vader PJs. And then I was done. I didn't have to watch the 11 a.m. service. And that, was, and that was my routine for a better part of a year. That's what it was like. And I loved it because it was so easy. And then earlier this year when the, number, the numbers of daily COVID cases began to drop, we started to wonder when we need to begin to meet in person. And while we were eager to do so because we missed you so much, right? That's right. We also weren't so eager to do so because we, we to be honest with you, we kind of liked the way things were. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest with you, we kind of liked the way things were. I mean, I had weekends, for the most part, off after I was done. When I wasn't speaking that weekend, I was really having a good time, right? And, uh, and so we struggle with that. And uh, it reminds me wh- where we were at, you know, we were, we were comfortable, where we were at reminds me of the story of the Moabites in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You don't have to turn. I'm just gonna, I'll just read these for you. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 16 if you, if you want to turn anywhere. But it, this whole thing that I was going through reminds me of the story of the Moabites in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 48. In Jeremiah 48, the image here is just absolutely stunning. But the Moabites were this ancient people. They were these ancient people who lived on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now, when we were in Israel, I took a photo of the Dead Sea. Take a look at this. This is the photo I took. We were standing on a military outpost way up high on the Judean desert. It's called Masada. And if you go to Israel with us next year, and I hope you will because I think things are going to be pretty, pretty good by then, even better than they are now, but we'll go to Masada. And uh, we stood on the very plateau of Masada, and, and I took this shot of the Dead Sea. And you can see the Dead Sea way in the back there, right? And there's a little bit on the left hence side as well. It is a dead sea. It is full of salt. And we actually went there and we were floating on the dead sea. It was kind of cool. But on the other side of the, of the sea, you can see that the hills there that just range from all the way to the left, all the way to the right, that hill, hillside there, that's Moab. That's Moab. And according to the book of Deuteronomy, Moab is where Moses died. Well, today Moab is uh, in the kingdom of Jordan. It's in the nation of Jordan. All right. Now, here's what the Lord said about Moab in Jeremiah 48, 11. I'll just put it up here for you. The Lord said, Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. And, and notice he, he uses the, word, the pronoun him or his to refer uh, a male, uh, a, a masculine pronoun to describe Moab. Uh, has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. All right, you can stop right there. Let me just unpack this for you. God explicitly said that Moab had been at ease since his youth. In other words, Moab, this people, and all the people who live there, life was good. They had been, in, they had been living in relative peace. I mean, they were comfortable. Second, he compared Moab 
to wine left on its dregs, left on its dregs that wasn't poured from one container to the other. Let me explain what that means. Back in ancient times when they made wine, they would, they would, the first thing that they would do is they have all, this, this, all these grapes, they would put in a wine press, and they would stomp on it. And they would stomp on it to get the juice. And when they, when they got the juice, they'd scoop out the juice, they would pour it into these wineskins, or they would pour it into these bottles. And they would let it ferment in these bottles or wineskins until it turned into wine. Well, during this process, the sediment, or the dregs, dregs is another word for sediment, the dregs would settle at the bottom. And if it sat there too long, then it would spoil the entire batch. It would spoil the wine so that you couldn't even drink it. And in order to fill out the dregs, or filter out the dregs, what you would do is you would get one wine skin, you would pour it into another. Or if it was in one bottle, you would pour it into another. And then later on, this would, you'd do this about every 40 days. And then you would pour it into another. And as you're, as you're pouring it into another container, you filter out the dregs and you throw away the dregs. That, that's how they would do this thing. In this passage, God compared Moab to wine that sat in its dregs. In other words, Moab become comfortable and self-satisfied, liked things just the way they were, and it wasn't. And Moab wasn't poured from one container to the other to remove the impurities and to remove the dregs. And what happened was the entire batch, the nation became impure itself. And that's why in the very next verse, in verse 12, God said this. The Lord said this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him pours who will pour him and, hit, and empty his vessels and break his jars in pieces. God pronounced judgment on Moab because Moab sat like a couch potato in his dregs. And judgment is exactly what Moab got. God wiped them out. You see, scriptures tell us that God detests comfort. And the point of this story is that comfort can be lethal to our own faith. It can be lethal to our own faith. Author Max Lucado said that comfort is the enemy of faith. In case you're wondering, the definition of comfortable is this. I'll put it up here for you. It is providing physical ease and relaxation. That's comfortable. That's the definition of comfortable. And we love comfort. We love our comfort. When you go on vacation, you want to stay at the Comfort Inn. Now, some of you would rather stay at the Ritz-Carlton. I've never stayed at the Ritz-Carlton, can't afford it, so I stay at the Comfort Inn. And you go to sleep at night, you like to snuggle up in your comforter. And when you're feeling a little needy, like, like we all did during this pandemic, you like to eat comfort food. And I ate too much of it during this pandemic. When it comes to our faith, comfort can lead to our downfall. It can lead to our downfall, and here's why. It's because comfort can lead to complacency. It can lead to complacency. Here's the definition of complacency, and I'll put it up here for you right next to the definition of comfort. Complacency is a feeling of quiet pleasure or security, often while unaware of some potential danger, defect, or the like. See the difference? When we become comfortable, it can lead to complacency. And when we become complacent, we will be content to stay right where we're at and keep doing what we're doing, completely unaware that danger is lurking right around the corner. And that's exactly what happened to Moab. And I'm afraid it can happen to the church. 
One of the most disturbing things I heard recently came from the Barner Research Group, which found that one in three Christians stopped attending church during the pandemic. Of course, we all stopped attending church during the pandemic, but one in every three Christians stopped attending online church. They stopped watching their church online. And if you think about it, it's, you, you can understand how, how that can happen. It's easy to see how that can happen. First of all, you don't have to wake up in the morning if you go to Sunday morning service. You don't have to get dressed. You don't have to drive to church. You don't have to hassle with the traffic. You don't have to worry about being late. You don't have to fuss with the kids trying to get them up and get them ready. All you need to do is wake up five minutes before the service and open up your app or turn on TV or computer and log on to YouTube and voila, it's there. There's church. It's, it's all right there for you. All done for you. Don't even have to serve because it's all done. And if you come to a particular day and you want to sleep late or you got something else you want to do, you want to play tennis, you want to go to the beach, you can watch it later because it's available 24-7. Not only that, if you watch, you can watch online while you're washing the dishes, while you're cooking a meal, while you're ironing your clothes, while you're on your stationary bicycle. You can do all kinds of things while you're watching church. And slowly what happens is that comfort leads to complacency. And you start getting busy with other things, and so you skip it. Hey, what's a week? I'll catch it later. But you get too busy, and you don't watch it later. Before you know it, you don't watch it at all. And then you become one of Barna's statistics. One in every three have walked away from church during the pandemic. As I told you, I'm so thankful for our online church. I am so thankful. And I'm so thankful for all of our volunteers and our staff that make it possible. Online church for us has allowed us to reach more people last year than ever before. We've had over 3 million views of our online content. That's extraordinary. At the same time, I believe the pandemic has revealed what I think is the greatest threat to Christianity today, and that is our comfortability and complacency. It has revealed perhaps the greatest threat to our faith, and that's comfort. And I can't even begin to tell you, as your pastor, how concerning this this is to me and the other pastors as well. Last week, I introduced you to Zach and Allison Nance, and they're here, they're here this morning, and uh, their daughter, Kayla, and they're preparing to be missionaries uh, to Japan. Well, today, I want to introduce you to another couple that we got to know during this pandemic, and, uh, and that's Ryan and Shannon and their son, Hudson. Now, for security purposes, we're not going to show you, I'm not going to show you their photo online. For those of you who are here in person, for those of you who are outside in person, this is Shannon and Ryan and their son, Hudson. I met Ryan for the first time about four years ago, shortly before he married Shannon. Ryan grew up here in the South Bay. His parents attend our church. Currently, he lives in Memphis, and whenever he's in town, uh, he attends South Bay Community Church. When I saw Ryan a few weeks ago, I, I bumped into him in the lobby. He told me that his wife and his family, they're expecting their second child in November. Uh, they're preparing to be missionaries somewhere on the continent of Asia. Now, I'm not going to name the country except to say that it is one of the spiritually darkest places in the entire world. 
It is a nation that is immersed in idolatry. It is a nation that is, that is extremely patently hostile toward Christ followers. It is a nation of immense poverty where tens of millions of people live on less than $2 a day. Moreover, it is a place where most people have never even heard the name Jesus. And because of COVID, Ryan and Shannon, like Zach and Allison, are not able to move to this country quite yet, and it probably won't be until the early part of 2022 that they do. This last week, Pastor Greg and Pastor Dan and I had the opportunity to have lunch with them, and, and we literally fought back tears as we heard their story and when we heard what they wanted to do. And when, they, when Ryan acknowledged, he acknowledged to us that there is the, the very real possibility that they may not come back alive. <clears throat> when I asked Ryan why he and Shannon were willing to sacrifice so much and to go, he gave me a two-part answer. I'll tell you the first part of his answer now, and then I'll tell you the second part of his answer later. First, he said, as he choked back emotions, he said that in this particular part of the world, 250,000 people die every single week without knowing Christ. 250,000 people die every week. That's a quarter of a million people who die every single week without Christ, doomed to spend an eternity in hell. That equates to someone dying every 1.5 seconds without Jesus. And he says that fact has anguished and tormented them to the point where they couldn't, they can't take it anymore. And they said, we have to do something about it. And so they're willing to go. That was the first part of his answer. And I asked him how, how they were doing with their support. Ryan told me that they were about 500. He said they're almost there. He said, but they're about $500 short. So I checked with Rod Sugiyama, and, who's chairman of our elder board, and the other elders. And they said, let's support them. And so thanks to your generosity, if, if we didn't have those extra funds on a monthly basis to do this, we can do this. But thanks to your generosity, they are now fully funded. Now, after lunch, I told Pastor Greg that I need to be more, around more people like Ryan and Shannon and Zach and Allison because they pump me up, right? They pump me up and they remind me that Christ is not, being a Christ follower is not about our comfort. They remind me of that. Being a Christian is not about our comfort. It's about the opposite. It is about being uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis, author C.S. Lewis, once said this. He said, quote, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really, to feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And he's right. Christianity is not a religion that ought to make us comfortable. It is inherently uncomfortable. And if you don't want to take my word for it, you can take our Lord's word for it. Let me give you four things Jesus said about how uncomfortable it is to be a Christian. Take a look at Matthew 16, 24. That's the first verse to look at. Matthew 16, 24. 
Now let me read it to you. It says here, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, you can stop there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. All right, you can stop. We'll start with that one. In your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, highlight, circle, underline the word deny. Right? If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. The Greek word for deny is apartneomai. Aparneomai. Aparneomai. And this is how it looks in English. And it's made up of two words, two Greek words, ap or apo and arneomai. And arneomai, the second word, means to reject or to disown or to repudiate or to, to, to deny. Ap or apo is a preposition which intensifies or magnifies the arneomai. And so what you get is this definition that aparneomai means to strongly reject, not just reject, not just repudiate, but to strongly reject or strongly repudiate or strongly deny. And thus Jesus said, if you want to follow him, if we want, if you want, if we want to follow him, we must strongly reject, we must strongly deny, we must strongly repudiate what? Ourselves. We've got to repudiate and deny ourselves. And what Jesus was getting at was very plain and simple. Your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your convenience. And it's not about your pleasure. It is not about your gratification. It isn't about your money. Your life is not about your time and what you do with it. It's not about your recreational activities. It's not about your ambitions. And of course, the culture tells us the very opposite. Our culture screams at us, it's all about you. But Jesus said, no, it's not about you. It's about him. John Calvin put it this way. He said, we are not our own. Therefore, neither is our own reason or will to rule our acts and counsels. We are not our own, therefore let us not make it our end to seek what may be agreeable to our carnal nature. We are not our own, therefore as far as possible let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand, we are God's. Let us therefore live and die to Him. We are God's. To Him, then, as the only legitimate end, let every part of our life be directed. See, your life is not about you. It's about Him. And you see, the first reason why following Christ is uncomfortable is because it requires us to deny ourselves, to strongly reject ourselves. And that's what Ryan and Shannon and Zach and Allison are willing to do. These four are willing to give up everything. Everything to follow Christ. Because they realize it's not about them. This life that they're living is not about them. It's about God. Now take a look at Matthew 16, 24 again. There's a second thing here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. The second thing that Jesus directed those who want to follow him to do is to take up his cross. In the Bible, in your Bible, highlight or underline, take up his cross. You know, after Jesus was condemned to die, he wasn't, 
he, uh, he was required to take up his cross, to take up the cross on which he was going to be crucified, executed. And he had to carry the cross on which he was going to die to the place of the skull, just outside the city walls where he would die. You might remember this image from the movie The Passion of the Christ. And the path that he took from the old city to the place of the skull is called the Via Della Rosa, which is Latin for sorrowful way. It's also translated the way of suffering, Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. We had a chance to walk this path when we were in Jerusalem a year and a half ago. When you, if you go with us next year, you can walk this path. When Jesus directed those who want to follow him to take up his cross, here's what he meant. He meant you need to be prepared to travel down the same path of suffering that I did. That's what he meant. That we need to be prepared to travel down the same path of suffering and sorrow that he did. If we want to follow him, you got to be prepared for that. And in fact, we must even be prepared to die on his behalf. And that's the second reason why following Christ is so uncomfortable is because it requires us to be prepared to suffer for his sake. When Ryan told me that there's a possibility, there's always the possibility that they might not come back alive. The human part of me wanted to say, don't go! Don't go! Just stay here! And I'm sure it's what their parents want to say to them. But I didn't say that to them because I know from reading this passage that suffering comes with the territory of being a Christ follower. And it, isn't applied, and it doesn't just apply to missionaries. It doesn't apply just to missionaries and, and pastors. I mean, pastors, we, we got it pretty easy compared to missionaries. But it doesn't require, it apply just to missionaries. It applies to all of us. Jesus requires all of us to follow him with a same degree of commitment. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yet so many, yet so many who claim to be believers in Jesus aren't willing to suffer for his sake and pay the price of following him, let alone make even the smallest of sacrifices to serve him. Maybe that's you. I hope it's not you, but maybe that's you. Maybe you don't want to share your faith because you just don't want the pushback from your family or your friends. Maybe you don't want to tell your friends that you're no longer going to join them for all those parties and do drugs and get drunk because you don't want to tell them that because it could cost you your friendship. Maybe you don't want to tell your significant other whom you're not married to that you're not going to have sex with them any longer because you just know it's not honoring to Christ. And you don't want to tell them that because that could spell the end of your relationship. Maybe you're someone who go to church only if you don't have anything else to do. If you don't have baseball for the kids, if you don't have tennis match set for yourself, then you go to church. Maybe you go to church once every six weeks when it's your time to serve. That's it. Maybe you don't plan a church for a long, long time because you don't think it's safe. Tell that one to Ryan and Shannon. Following Jesus is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And it concerns me that so many care more about their comfort than they do about following Jesus, no matter what it takes, no matter what the price. So I'd ask you what keeps you from giving Christ your all? What keeps you from giving him 100%? 100%? What keeps you from serving him? 
Right now, signing up and serving Him. What keeps you from doing something as simple as going to church? What's your excuse? For Ryan and Shannon and Zach and Allison, it's absolutely nothing. Nothing. They'll do whatever it takes. You know, during the pandemic, some people did some pretty outrageous and some pretty crazy over-the-top things, right? Like, like early on, remember running to the store and grabbing all the toilet pa- toilet, uh, rolls of toilet paper you can find? Remember those days? Right? I'm glad we can't see who that is because it might be someone from our church. <laughs> might be somebody in my family. <laughs> some people were so desperate for a hug that they came up with an over-top way, over-the-top way to give each other an embrace. Another guy was so desperate to see a baseball game that he stuck in the Dodgers stadium and pretended to be a cutout so he could watch the game. Is that you, Austin? That was all. <laughs> you see, he's in the left hand, upper, upper left-hand corner. And then when we were ordered, when everyone's ordered to wear a face mask, everyone's got to wear a face mask, right? Which weren't easy to come by because everyone's out looking for a face mask. One guy came up with an over-the-top idea to cover his face. He used a coffee filter. Why not? It's a coffee, <laughs> coffee filter. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said something that was about as over the top as anything he's ever said. Over the top, insane, crazy, are you serious kind of a statement. Take a look at Luke 14, 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Why would he say such a thing? What was he getting at? I can't be a Christian unless I'm willing to hate my father and mother and brother and sister and wife and children and even my own self. The key to understanding this verse rests with one word, and that's the word hate. Right? That's the word. Right? Circle the word hate or highlight the word hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, right, on its face, this is crazy and over the top until you understand the Greek word for hate. Remember the, the passage. The New Testament was written in the Greek. So, so we have a translation. Ours is an English translation, right? Our New Testament is an English translation of the Greek. And sometimes it's not translated accurately the way the Greek uh, spelled it out. And so we look at the Greek occasionally to see what it really means. And in this case, it's worth doing so. In this case, the word, the Greek word for hate is miseo, miseo. And get this, it means to love less, right? It doesn't mean to intensely dislike someone, which is kind of the dictionary definition of hate. It, it, it means to love less. Uh, I do most of my Greek study on a website called called BibleHub.com. Terrific resource. I use it all the time. Here's what Luke 14, 26, how, how it appears on Bible Hub. And it says this, uh, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, paren 3403, that's uh, probably a concordance, Strong's concordance citation, miseo, love less, I highlighted that, love less than the Lord, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? So the word hate here does not mean hate as we know and understand hate to mean. It means to love less. In other words, when Jesus made this statement, he did not mean that you should go out and have an intense 
and passionate dislike for your parents and you must dislike your wife and you must dislike your children and you must hate your, your brothers and sisters. No, instead what he meant was you need to love them less than you love him. We need to love them less than we love him. And put another way, Jesus said, we need to love him more. We need to love him more than we love anyone else. And that's the third reason why following Christ is so uncomfortable, because it requires us to love him more than we love anyone else. You know, as parents, there isn't anyone that Cheryl and I love more than our children. I used to tell my daughters, I love you to the moon and back. See the moon up there? I love you all the way to the moon and back. And I, wanted, I used the moon because I wanted them to get an idea how much I love them. I love you to the moon and back. I mean, we would do anything for them. Right? We would do anything for them. We would, we would give up our lives for them. We would die for them in a heartbeat. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm saying. So here's some gut check questions. How much do you love Jesus? Do you love him to the moon and back? I mean, would you do anything for him? Would you do anything for him like serve him? Would you gladly give up your life for Jesus? Like you would give up your life for your children. I mean, would you be willing to die for Jesus? If it, required, if it was required of you today, would you be willing to die for Jesus? I mean, how would you answer these questions? I know how Ryan and Shannon and Zach and Allison would answer these questions. They would say in a heartbeat, absolutely yes. Let me tell you about one more thing Jesus said. Matthew 19. There's an account of a, about a rich man who asked Jesus what good he needed to do in order to Received the gift of eternal life. Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. All right, now, let me explain a few things. Jesus said, if you would be perfect. Right? He wasn't suggesting that the man could be perfect. Of course, that's impossible. Right? The word, again, you've got to look at the Greek here. The Greek word for perfect does not mean perfect as we know perfect. It, it means maturity or perfection. In other words, if you want to be mature or all grown up, then here's what you need to do. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and come and follow me. So in this passage, Jesus wasn't laying out terms for salvation. This is not how you get saved. All right, you want to, go to, you want to have eternal life? You want to go to heaven? Okay, go sell everything you have. No, no, no. What, what, that's not what he was saying here. You can't go to heaven... By your good deeds. You can't go to heaven by selling everything you have and giving it away. Right? What he was doing instead, what Jesus was doing instead was he was exposing the man's heart for what it was. He was exposing his heart. See, the man cared more about his money than he cared about eternal things. He cared more about his possessions and his toys than he did about the things of God. And Jesus' point was that if you want to follow him, if you want to follow him, you've got to love him more than your things. That's your last point. You want to follow Jesus requires us to love him more than we love our things, more than we love our stock, more than we love our Bitcoin, more than we love our Tesla, more than we love our diplomas, more than we love our houses and our cars. I mean, everything. And that's the question for us, right? Do you love Jesus more than you love your things? So when you look at everything Jesus said, when you put it all together, in terms of what it takes to follow him, you can't help but conclude that Christianity is uncomfortable. There's nothing comfortable about it. It is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. But here in America, 
We've made Christianity all about our ease and all about our comfort and all about our convenience. That's the thing that, that, that's what this pandemic has revealed. We like comfortable, we like our comfortable little faith all in a box. Finally, let me close with Ryan's second answer to the question when I asked him why he and Shannon are willing to sacrifice so much and go. Simply put, Ryan said they're willing to go because of what God has done for them. He said, we're willing to go because of what Jesus did for us because he has been so good to us. And I, and I thought about that. I t- took these thoughts from Scripture. What did, how's he been so good to, to us? What has he done for us? Came to earth in the form of a man. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded so that we might be healed. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were helpless, Christ died for us. God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. By faith, we passed from death to life. We became new creations in Christ. We were born again. By grace, we were saved. We've been reconciled and redeemed and forgiven. We've been given the gift of eternal life. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and I can go on and on and on. God has been so good to us, and Ryan said, that's why we want to go. That's why we're willing to serve him, because of all that he has done for us. And we're willing to do whatever it takes, no matter what it costs. We'll go wherever he wants us to go. I would ask you, is that your attitude? Would you say the same thing? It should be our attitude. I hope it will be our attitude. It must be our attitude. Because Christ did the same things for us, for you and me, that he did for Ryan and Shannon and Zach and Allison. Church, I hope that from this day forward, you will resolve that from this day forward, you will reject America's brand of comfortable Christianity, which is nothing less than Satan's brand of Christianity. Instead, I hope you'll live all out for Jesus, 100% for Jesus so that we don't ever meet the same fate as Moab. Let's close our time in prayer. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to give you a moment just to reflect on what you've heard. And I want to give you a chance just to say to God whatever it is that you need to say to Him. Do you, need, do you need to ask God to forgive you because you've lived, your, because your faith and your Christianity is all about your comfort and your convenience? Confess that to him. Run back to him. And you will receive you with open arms. Have you taken your faith for granted? All the things that Jesus has done for you all the things. Go back this week into the scriptures and read it. Read everything he's done for you. Have you taken that for granted? Ask him to forgive you. Say to him whatever you need to say to him. Father, will you stir in us? Will you 
get us to a place that everyone who's part of South Bay, no matter where they're at, no matter what country they're in, no matter what state they're in, no matter that we're right here, that we'd get to a place where we're going to reject America's brand of Christianity, that it's about our comfort and our convenience. We'll make it about you instead. Lord, as we, as we think about all that you have done for us, how can we not serve you? How can we not worship you? How can we not love you? And how can we not do whatever it takes to make you know? How can we not live our lives 100% for you? Like Ryan and Shannon, like Zach and Allison. Father, may this church stand out because the people here are willing to do whatever it takes to be your disciple. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he did for us. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.